It's time for Sex Talk with Lou. Lou Paget on Toginet. So, have you ever wondered if you're normal or why you feel distant from your partner? Why they keep doing that? Want to recreate a truly connected relationship? Or wondered, how do I tell my partner or kids about things? Then this is your chance to be a fly on the wall and learn about one of the most important parts of our health, our sexual health. Lou Paget is a certified sex educator, an international best-selling author. And not only will Lou and her guests discuss the most current research, they will put you at the head of the class on good, solid, scientifically-based information and how it will impact you and your family. Known for delivering information about sexuality and relationships sans the sleaze factor while retaining all the accuracy, fun, and the you're kidding factor. Let's get to it. Sex Talk with Lou on Toginet. And now here's your host, Lou Paget. Welcome, everyone, and thank you again for being with me this week. I am going to do a continuation because I didn't get to cover all of the material that was, as I call it, rooms full of sex educators that were at the Minneapolis, uh, Minnesota ASEC meeting uh, last week. I, pardon me, that was a week ago, 10 days ago. And there are some of the things I didn't get a chance to talk about, one of them being a taste of kink, which this is one of the first times, second time that it's been done. There was such a problem with a previous um, uh, presentation and fortunately, we have some strong, won't back down leadership in ASEC who said, look, this is an area that needs to be covered. Educators, therapists need to know and, and experience with their own eyes, not just hear about it, hear from people who are in that world, who are practicing. So kudos to, you know, to Russell Stambaugh and also to Susan Bright. So I'm going to be talking about that. And I'm going to also continue back with, for people who wanted to know, how do you create a core-gasm, which was the presentation that Dr. Debbie Herbenek did. And she, has, she actually broke it down to a very, uh, a very observational, this is what people were doing and this is how it occurred for them. Now, again, like any orgasm, listen, I wrote the book, The Big O, because people kept asking me, uh, you know, are, are mine okay? And, and am I doing them the right way? And my question would be, were, were you having fun? <laughs> Did you enjoy yourself? <laughs> Not, you're supposed to have what everybody else is having. Sexuality is an appetite. Thank God we don't all like the same thing, because if we did relative to food, we'd have one restaurant. And wouldn't that just be just, just crazy-making torturously boring. So I'm going to be speaking about that. But to go back to uh, Dr. Herbenex, here is the equation for those who have or would like to experience a corgasm. There's a couple of things. First off is you have to literally build up cardiovascular in your body. So you've got more blood flowing. So you're doing things so you do a cardiovascular exercise. Then what you do is you do these ab exercises, whether it's the captain's chair, you know, the one with your legs are hanging down and curving up like that, or you're doing crunches, or, you know, you've got feet. You're doing something that is literally combining the two 
muscular systems that are connected. And as I said last week, when she went to look for whether or not there is research in the area of the the pelvogenital floor, the pelvic genital floor musculature connected to the abdominal, you know, abdominal, abdominalis rectus, the whole ab area, there really wasn't any, she only found a couple of Korean studies, I believe were Korean and Japanese studies. So she couldn't find something that actually did, you know, that, that talked about the core um, ab with the pelvic floor core muscles. But so you do the strong cardiovascular, then you do the core exercises to fatigue. You literally go to fatigue and stop and then do it again. And what you're really doing is you are literally forcing, there's more oxygen, cardiovascular, right? There's more blood and pressure within the pelvic area. For men, and I think I did speak of a gentleman I know who was a top trainer, who he's the first time I heard of this happening. And he didn't want to continue doing his crunches because he didn't want to have an ejaculation. And that was when, you know, he was wearing fairly, you know, light flimsy material. For women, it doesn't necessarily look like the same thing. But there are women in the military who have had this happen. And as they are doing their crunches and as they're doing their really strong ab work, they're being perceived as being weak because they're going through an orgasmic response. <laughs> this is kind of, as Debbie Evernick said, she never expected this to be something that would come out of uh, the area of the military. Also, when she was working with the physical therapists, the PTs were saying, yes, well, when you get to the point of fatigue, the muscles are releasing nitric oxide. And that's one of the things that ends up happening when Viagra is being used is that there is the release of these things post the fatigue. And so it's kind of like, oh, the one group didn't know what the other group knew. And that's, you know, so here's what we talk, we talk about that as, you know, what, what do we refer to it as? Adjacent learning or adjacent awareness of something that as a result of looking at one thing, it wasn't until you turned and went, oh, there it is. So anyone... and. Also, for people who have this happen when they're in a, a spinning class, it isn't necessarily the clitoral contact with the seat. It's more when they're up and they're riding the hill. So, again, it's that stronger. So you've got the strong pelvic, you know, contractions as a result of the legwork, and you've got the strong core work because, you know, you're on your handles. So I just wanted to give a little update on that. So next thing I would like to referred to is what they what we know as the Schiller plenary. And this is a plenary where the, the scholar who spoke about it, her name is Monica Ray Simpson. And her context was talking about reproductive oppression. And this is something that when she started talking reverberated for me very powerfully because this is similar to the things that Dr. Joycelyn Elders speaks of. And what Dr. Elders speaks of is if we are not giving children, particularly young girls, access to accurate sexual health education and accurate preventative pregnancy, we are basically doing, it is a form 
of sexual abuse not to give them that information because we have these girls are turning around and, you know, the, the woman who was presenting, Monica Ray Simpson, said, I had all my colleagues, you know, all of my friends in, in high school. She said, you know, in, in grade school, she said they were getting pregnant at 12, 13, 14, and there went their lives. As soon as you're responsible for another, you know, as Dr. Elder, Elders calls it, babies having babies, you're in trouble. So that was, it was a, a, a fascinating plenary. And by the way, Schiller is the woman who actually founded ASEC, the American Association of Sex Educators, Counselors, and Therapists. Her name is Patricia Schiller. She just turned 101. And this woman was a force to be reckoned with. And she and her husband put, you know, he was the one who said, you should be doing this. I mean, she was an attorney. And she's the one who created the foundation for this. And so what they look for, obviously with this plenary, is someone who is doing the same type of, you know, groundbreaking research and presentations that uh, Patricia Schiller did in her work. So she's still, if I'm not mistaken, she is still in New York. And I think the last time she was at ASAC was, I think, 2008, 2009, maybe even a little later. Anyway, this was something that for me, I loved hearing that, you know, basically you have to give the parents, the support, and the safety. You have to give free body autonomy, and you have to give something where they know that they have support from within their own community. So we're going to be coming up to my first break here, talking about, again, some of the ASECT material from the uh, Minneapolis show, uh, pardon me, the Minneapolis conference that I was just at. And there were a number of different layers of things that I was at while I was there. One I'm going to talk about when we get back from the break is, how's this one? Male sexual fluidity. Is her husband gay, straight, or bi? Unfortunately, I missed that one. That was Joe Court, and I really would have liked to have seen it. And I said last time, the tough part of this is you don't really... there's so many that you have to pick and choose from that you have to load up your plate in only one area in order to get your CE requirements, and that would have been one I'd like to go to. But I will be talking about it because there's points in it that I think are uh, germane to for almost all of us. And the one I'm going to come back with is by Dr. Uh, Emily Nagoski, Nagoski, and she is talking about in the middle of the brain. Effective Neuroscience for Sexuality Professionals. And what she talked of, which for me was really quite fascinating, how does sexual frustration work and what can a person do about it? And then she also referred to what happens when you see a context that, you know, something that hurts in one area, but you feel pleasurable in another area. So let's say you see something in a form of sexual violence, but it's a turn-on. What do you do about that? And so I will be looking at her presentation on that, and then immediately after that, I will go, as I said, talk about is her husband gay, straight, or bi? Then I'm going to be covering the taste of kink, and that was where there were 120 of us who were brought to a club, and 
were able to speak directly to the people who were in their form of play, whether it was flogging, whether it was rope play, whether it was um, electro-stim, or whether it was pleasure, you know, deprivation, you know, pardon me, sensation deprivation. And then also, here's even better, right? If people wanted, they could also try it themselves. So when we come back, I'm going to be talking about uh, if you find something pleasurable and you don't think it should be, and a taste of pecan is her husband, gay, straight, or bi. Please stay with me. I'll be right back. This is Sex Talk with Lou on TogiNet with your host, Lou Paget. Techniques and tips are her specialty. She delivers bite-sized chunks of information you can use right away that work. So stand by for more sex talk when we get back after these. This is Sex Talk with Lou on TogiNet.com. LinkedIn, it's a great tool and a great way to do business in today's social media-driven world. And Carol McManus is the LinkedIn lady with the LinkedIn Lady Show, Tuesday and Wednesday afternoons at 4 p.m. Eastern on allbusinessradionetwork.com. The LinkedIn Lady Show is designed to inform, inspire, and educate businesses. Every social media site has a specific demographic, personality, and purpose. And the LinkedIn Lady will interview a variety of guests, such as business owners who can showcase their business and talk about how they use social media, such as Facebook, Twitter, YouTube, Google+, Pinterest, and of course, LinkedIn. For more on Carol and the show, check out her website, LinkedInLady.com. As trends change and new applications become available, the LinkedIn Lady Show will bring that information to you in an easy-to-use, fun, and engaging way. Every Tuesday and Wednesday afternoons at 4 p.m. Eastern, it's the LinkedIn Lady Show with Carol McManus on AllBusinessRadioNetwork.com. This is the Toginet Radio Network, radio with a cutting edge. Welcome to Toginet, radio with a cutting edge. Welcome back to Sex Talk. Imagine having access to some of the best experts in the field of sexuality and sexual health so you can finally ask that question. Be it function, sensation, or something you've heard, this is the spot. It's Sex Talk with Lou on toginet.com. And now, back to your host, Lou Paget. Hello, everyone, and welcome back. As I had said uh, just before the last break, I'm going to be talking on, as I titled this, More Rooms Full of Sex Educators. What people who, you know, talk about sex for a living, what really interests us. And one of the things I have to say about the ASEC conference, the most recent one, it was one of the best that I've gone to in quite some time. There was new stuff. It was fresh stuff. It was things that had me think. And the the first one I'm going to talk about right now is Emily Nagoski. And she looks at how do you, in your own, you know, if you are seeing something that is upsetting to you and yet you do become sexually aroused, what is it that's going on and are you, you know, that's are you crazy or, or what's the issue? And for me, this is one of the first times I've heard a number of the terms that she used. And 
to me it was quite fascinating. She uses, let me go back here, I've, I've got about eight pages of notes from her. So here we go, starting from the top. Uh, she looked at the, from a cognitive science standpoint, so she looked at the, you know, the research that has currently been done, and it tends to be cisgender, meaning you identify with the gender that you were born into, white and college age, because that's where you have, I mean, I remember doing some of these when I was in university, and it was people who were in psychology who were doing a master's or a PhD, and they offered the students, you know, a pittance to come and do their testing for them to test on, and, you know, what age and what you know, type of people are typically going to college. There's certain age, certain range of things. And what she would like to do is to see that we actually are shifting and changing the research out of this gender binary where it's male, female. And this should actually be more changed in the next 10 years because we have this sort of bubble of people coming in to the area of colleges who have, whether they're gender queer, whether they're queer, whether they're um, heteronormative, whether they are this, and there's such a range of how people identify. And how one identifies is up to them. It doesn't have to be determined by their physiology, by what their body looks like. And it doesn't have to be determined by what they may have been raised with. And then there's also which I'll talk about with Joe Quartz thing, the gender fluidity, which anyone who has heard me speak knows that that's also something that Helen Fisher addresses, is that female sexuality is much more fluid and variable throughout a woman's life than ever was assumed or expected. And, <clears throat> excuse me, if we think for one brief moment, a lot of the sexuality response that has been the basis or the foundation for looking at pleasure and looking at orgasm has all been tied to the very strong visibility of a penis getting erect and having an ejaculation. And only now are we having people go, you know, well, not just now, but in the last 15 years, it's like, hello, have a coffee. This is not what works in female sexual world. I mean, just as an example, <clears throat> excuse me, when I'm talking to people on the buildup of sensation, male sexual response pattern tends to be, and I'm just saying this as sort of like a blanketing statement, but more of a straight up, like a little mountain. And then if there's orgasm, done. Or it will build up, but the issue will often be because of the intensity of sensation, if there isn't the continued intensity of sensation, such as when one takes a break to put on a condom, there is a drop-off of the erection. There's a drop-off of the continual uh, stimulation and blood engorgement, and that can cause a drop of erection, which for most men is absolutely what they do not want to have happen. Versus female sexual response tends to be more of a build and then plateau stop the sensation, let it sort of simmer down for a little bit, build plateau, so that if someone is using that same straight up the hill, for most women, it's too much, too quickly, ouch. And if it is ouch, you literally cannot go back to what feels good. So that's, I mean, just from a basic, you know, 
this is a better way to be observing stimulation, that is something that we often are not, has not been taken into consideration with previous studies. So to go back to Nagoski's comment, and I completely agree with her, that we need to have a better way of looking at the range of sexual response patterns and sexual identities. So when we look at the brain itself, and she talks about this, we have a dual control model. There's sort of like, there's the brain in the middle, then there's the sexual, you know, you know, inhibition, and then there's sexual excitation. And one of the things that she talked about is that we have to have the awareness of a number of different models when we look at our sexuality and we look at our sex drive. And she said, let's be honest, sex is not a drive. It is something that is can be a motivator, but your sex being a drive, a drive is something that is an uncomfortable interval that pushes you. In other words, to get to, you know, more of, a, of a, a state where you're not in that state of whether it might be hunger. So you don't want to be hungry anymore. But sex is not that. And what she talked about is arousal non-concordance. And for her, remember I talked about at the beginning of this, she said that what happens if there's sexual frustration? What happens if you're looking at something your body is responding, but your brain is going, no, what is going on here? And she talked about that, again, this is arousal, non-concordance. And the first time, and she didn't know anything about this, but she was in college, and she had a friend of hers who had been at a party, and he walked by a room, and he saw that his friend was raping this one young woman who was passed out. And even though... He never expected this to happen. His genitals responded, and he was absolutely flooded with shame and guilt. So what she is stating here is that this arousal non-concordance is that it was a sexually relevant event, but it was not an event that was of your own, your own drive. So... You can have something that would be perceived as sexually relevant, but it doesn't have the mental component to it. So she said she wished she had been there to be able to, you know, have the awareness that she does now is that he was able to see this, but he doesn't have to see it as in his own brain. It's not like his brain is... Uh, his brain isn't like pulling the rug out from underneath him and saying that you really do find this arousing. It is a separate thing. So the genital response is something that is telling us what is sexually relevant. And that's also the work that Meredith Shivers did, who's in, I believe it's Ottawa, University or, or Ottawa area. And she looked at women saying that when they looked at uh, porn and whether or not their brain did not say that they were being turned on by sexual activity from bonobo apes, but their vaginas were. So 
she thought that, and it, this was, that was groundbreaking. So Nagoski has expanded from that. So she wants people to be aware that there are, there is spontaneous desire and then there's responsive desire. And what we have to be able to look at is that having a sexually relevant response does not tie in to what, from a moral standpoint, from a personal standpoint, from a subjective standpoint, what you would necessarily do, okay? She then also talked about, you know, again, I said this before, letting go, letting go of sex as a drive and that frustration about something is not, not the same thing as suffering. So she talked about having uh, the debunking handbook. So how you can take evidence-based strategy and how you can use it to bust a myth. Because what people will often do is they will take statistics and twist them around in order to make them support their own, uh, their own you know, uh, hypothesis of what they're trying to do. And anyone who's done anything in science knows your hypothesis is the thing you want to test and want to prove. So you'll do everything you can to make sure your hypothesis is true, even if that means on some occasions knocking out statistics that refer, will absolutely tell your you know, people, no, this is not, you're, you're, that's inaccurate, you are wrong. Many times they will completely ignore it. So we're coming down to the three-minute mark here. I'm going to talk here quickly, quickly about Joe Quartz. Uh, is her husband gay? And often what he was saying here is that, you know, when men reveal fantasies, even if it's about sex with men, the tendency is to label him as gay or bisexual. However, for many of men, this is not, you know, either. And what I have found is the same thing, and I, I'm going to get a hold of Joe, I really would like to have him on the show, is that men who have sex with men, for some of them, they do identify as bisexual, some do identify as gay, but for many men, they identify as straight, period, flat out. They're just, in, you know, enjoying this. Some men, and in fantasies, fantasies are not necessarily what someone's going to identify with. A fantasy can just be that turn on, and a fantasy is invariably something that people enjoy masturbating to or thinking about trying. They're not the, you know, the thing. And here's the other thing about fantasy. A fantasy is not necessarily, then again, a behavior. So a man might want to have sex with men, identify as being straight. Someone may identify as being bisexual, being attracted, but they still have, you know, they look at both women and men. So as I said, one of the things about going to these conferences is we often do not get to go to many of the things that we think would be fascinating for us. So when we come back, I will be going on to Taste of Kink, and then I'm also going to talk about the best sex advice you've ever gotten. Who gave it to you, when, and how? So please stay with me. We're going to come back with a Taste of Kink, which was an alternate sex um, sexuality investment uh, investing group big and we'll be back after the two this 
to Sex Talk with Lou on TogiNet. With your host, Lou Paget. techniques and tips are her specialty. She delivers bite-sized chunks of information you can use right away that work. So stand by for more Sex Talk when we get back after these. This is Sex Talk with Lou on TogiNet.com. inspiration and motivation every Friday at noon Eastern Standard Time. Learn how to maximize your mojo and just say no to the status quo. Get inspired and motivated by a fun-loving coach who knows what it's like to get through this thing called life. With your high on life coach, Audra Irwin, each Friday at 11 a.m. Central Standard Time and 12 noon Eastern. Radio Network, broadcasting quality programming to the world. Homeschooling? Have questions? Get your pen and paper ready. It's the sociable homeschooler, Vivian McNinney. Fridays at 5, 4 central on toginet.com. After a handsome blue-eyed Texan fell in love with Vivian at the Victoria Station in London, she found herself at DFW Airport with a tiny suitcase and a snazzy little duffel bag. Well, 25 years later, she is now happily married to that blue-eyed cowboy. They have four grown children, ages 24 to 18, who became willing guinea pigs when she unwittingly stumbled upon the world of homeschooling. Wildflower Academy flourished for 15 years. They survived and thrived, and you can too. Vivian will be covering a wide range of issues that face homeschoolers. What do you do with kids in the summer? How to set up your one-room schoolhouse? How obedience is paramount? And what to do with those snakes? Plus, you'll be sharing ideas and insights that you glean from other homeschoolers. So join us for an engaging hour with a sociable homeschooler. Vivian McNinney, Friday afternoons at 5, 4 Central on toginet.com. Welcome back to Sex Talk. Imagine having access to some of the best experts in the field of sexuality and sexual health so you can finally ask that question. Be it function, sensation, or something you've heard, this is the spot. It's Sex Talk with Lou on toginet.com. And now, back to your host, Lou Paget. Welcome back, everyone. Uh, now, before I go into A Taste of Kink, I would like to just touch quickly on two items that were in the news, one that I made some comments on HuffPost about, and uh, on Wendy Widom, W-I-D-O-M. She's great, by the way. She's out of Chicago. Does a great job with um, her blog and her um, work in media. She does all the me- um, social media for, I think it's CBS in Chicago. And... Uh, so Rachel Dolezal, I mean, I may be mispronouncing her name, Dolezal, and the NACC, NAACP chapter, and this is the woman who is identifying as being black and then just today has stepped down as the, I think she was the president of that chapter. And at some point, someone, people were trying to say that they were saying that she was the same thing as Caitlyn Jenner. And I have to say... I think that they are both situations of wanting to identify as something outside of what they were born as. But for Caitlin, it is something that she is, she did this of her own choice and her own volition to 
be public that she, this is who she is. Whereas for Rachel, she really did not want people to know. And it was how she identified in, as whether it's from her family, whether whatever it may be. But I, to me, she, we're still not hearing why she wants to be identified as being black. I mean, apparently there were four foster children who were black in her family. I, I, I don't know, and I haven't talked to her, so I don't know. But to me, what often will happen is if there's something that they can tack on and attach to it being about sexuality, often, unfortunately, the media will do that. In this case, I think there are two very different um, events, and I think Rachel will continue to be who she identifies with, and Caitlin will continue to be who she is. Bless her and send her on the way. Now, the other thing, I'm thinking, surely to goodness we've come to the bottom of this, where the University of Minnesota, uh, St. Paul, the Archbishop, has just resigned, John um, Neinstedt and the Auxiliary Bishop. And interestingly enough, what I found interesting about this uh, report is that the prosecutors did not go after them individually. What the prosecutors did is they went after the corporation. They went after the Archdiocese Corporation. And if any of you know anything about corporations, one of the things that can pierce that corporate veil is sexual abuse and sexual harassment. And I think that, that is where they said, you guys are either retiring or we're going to end up being in a whole other, you know, F-storm of what's going on here. And so whether or not we say that, you know, but I think the prosecutors were very smart in doing this because they did not name um, individuals in this. But once again, you know, clearing people out of the way. Let's talk about disruptive technologies for one moment, whether it's in the area of sexuality or the area of relationships or the area of faith. And disruptive technologies and disruptive philosophies have become sort of the name of the game, the order of the day. And I think, you know, and I had this conversation with someone literally this morning on the Catholic Church has got to have a disruptive philosophy to come in to save its own bacon. It is so antiquated and so out of step with what's going on. Thankfully, we have, you know, the Pope Francis that we do now, but we were talking about a church that we know of here in California, one of the richest Catholic churches, and they finally took this one person out who kept browbeating the people who were making money, telling them they were supposed to be giving more money. Look, these people have made their money, and you don't do that. You have someone who is there looking and has a forward-thinking vision. And I think the Catholic Church is about to go through a whole bunch of disruptive technologies and disruptive philosophies, and it may just about be time for them to realize people who never marry, who never have children, who never have jobs they have to worry about, who never supposedly are having sex, three of the number or four of the number one reasons for stressors in people's lives, we need to get people who are on the same page as the people who are coming to them for help and guidance so that they can actually walk in the same shoes. I'm just saying. Okay, here we go. Taste of kink. This is a special interest group in the area of alternative sexuality, and I talked about it being uh, Russell Stambaugh and the other person 
who was uh, the coordinator on it, uh, was um, Susan Wright. So they, they refer to as the, the presenters. Now, let me give you a little story on how this looked. There were 120 of us who were bused to a, um, a dungeon, and we arrived. There was seated area. Now, here's the thing about dungeons. You can either be an observer or you can be a participant. No one has to participate, uh, you know, outside of their own comfort zone. But what was so great about this is there were... One, two, three, four, five. There were six different scenes going on at the same time. So there was a foot fetish where the, you know, the engaging of the people in the foot fetish, you stood on the side, but only during, you know, at the end of the scene were you to ask questions, but you could ask specifically what motivated you, how did this happen, where did... and not from a let's find something wrong, but from an understanding, truly the organic understanding of where did this come from. And one woman who really enjoys sensation play, she had spent a lifetime of dealing with getting needles all the time and stuff, and she loves that really sharp sting of things. And she said, I never made the connection before. So she likes to have like a rubber band or something around her waist and then like they snap it and that for her is like very highly arousing. The other thing, when you go to these, there's food, but there's no alcohol, there are no stimulants, there's no drugs. So the brain chemistry, the endorphins of the brain chemistry and the the bodily changes with the sensation play, that's the high that people are looking to get. So one woman, it was her birthday, so she was on the, the horse and she was getting flogged and then caned. I think she was 52. Now, uh, the person who was doing it happened to be her in real life husband, who they also play, but they also find uh, people who they like to play with and who they have created scenes with who they find on Fat Life. And anyone who's looked to find someone, Fat Life, according to people who are in the area of BDSM, bondage, dominance, sadomasochism, that is the most real, honest site to find people who it is their community creating people for their community. So some of these people, they play together and have done so for years. So there was the foot fetish, then there was the flogging, the spanking, then there was rope play. So the, the Japanese style of rope play, hands behind or, or tied up and then lifted up so that the, the, you can't really move. And then the dom was using a very large vibrator on this woman while she was um, in the rope play. Then there was the flogging on both a woman and a man, flogging on the X, the little crossed X. Then there were uh, electro-stim. So people would be using, um, a, they would be grounded, but they would be using electro-stim on different areas of the body for sensation play. And then the final was there was um, using a mask to, for sensory deprivation, 
There could have been nipple clamps. There could have been different clamps on different areas of the body. But what happens is because our brains are so powerful, they use, you know, they're, what is it, 2% of our body weight, but they use 20% of our energy. Taking away the vision, basically, and, and that's something that when people are meditating, if you've ever done that, the important thing is, is to bring yourself into a state, an inward state. And that's part of what, you know, the sensory deprivation um, has been. So, do excuse me, we have a little, a little phone action going on here. We're going to get rid of that for a moment. There we go. Um, anyway, we are coming up to our final break. The best thing that I think people got out of the taste of kink if they were, we were, I was able to ask specifically, what age were you when you first started this? Um, how many people do you like to do things with? Because when people come to me, they're not coming to someone to see a therapist, uh, a sex therapist, if, you know, because of what is happening in their alternate sexual world. They are there because they might have a mother who's dying. They might have a child who's dealing with addiction. They might have stressors in their life that have nothing to do with whether or not they are, you know, they have, they are kinky in the rest of their lives. And the other thing, the one group that was great that it brought forth and anyone who was there got like these little goodie packs to take home, like a little crop and a little feather duster from sports sheets, which any of you know, if you've listened to any of my things, Tom Stewart and um, his sister at sports sheet and his wife, they are fabulous and so generous. And what they do is they're, the motto of their company is, you know, keeping couples connected. So they do vanilla kink, but they do things, they have such fun things that are light kink. I mean, they've got other things that can be used that are, you know, much more intense. But they gave the, um, any participants. So it really gave people who had never been to a dungeon an awareness. There were people on the side, monitors who were helping people, who gave them better ideas. But all in all, it was to me one of the more, eye-opening for all of the people that were there is that they could experience it and experience the type of enjoyment these people got from this play. So we're coming up to our final break, and when we come back, I'm going to talk about best sex advice you've ever gotten and also talking about um, sexuality of people with the autistic spectrum because that's an area where more people and parents are dealing with and teenagers. Be right back. This is Sex Talk with Lou on TogiNet with your host, Lou Paget. Techniques and tips are her specialty. She delivers bite-sized chunks of information you can use right away that work. So stand by for more sex talk when we get back after these. This is Sex Talk with Lou on TogiNet.com. Secret Cuisines and Sacred Rituals is a quest, a place, and a feast. Join host Vilasi Venkatachalam every week to explore myths, mystique, old medicine, and brilliant modern solutions through a dazzling kaleidoscope of cuisines, cultures, and cures. 
This is the place where tribes gather, strangers and familiars, to be memory keepers and makers of our evolving, enduring, evergreen, spoken legacy of wisdom and ingenuity. In Velocity's words, when we do old things in new ways and new things in old ways, we paint with an inspired palette, weave our own healing traditions, and become our own guru. Velocity is a troubadour of secret cuisines and sacred rituals. She collects stories of wisdom, ingenuity, and grit. She believes wellness and transformation happen when you stand at the threshold of delight and discovery. She displays her hidden penchant for drama when she leads the safari at the supper club. Her favorite pastime is to extol the marvels of cuisines, cultures, and cures to her audience in workplaces, seminars, and salons. Her mantra is, be your own guru. She is a biochemist, botanist, and alchemist who likes to churn delightful, useful things from a brew of art and science, ancient and evolving, old medicine, and new cures. Join Velocity every Friday at 11 a.m. Eastern Standard Time, only here on the WooHoo Radio Network. This is the Toginet Radio Network, broadcasting quality programming to the world. Welcome to Toginet, radio with a cutting edge. Welcome back to Sex Talk. Imagine having access to some of the best experts in the field of sexuality and sexual health so you can finally ask that question. Be it function, sensation, or something you've heard, this is the spot. It's Sex Talk with Lou on toginet.com. And now, back to your host, Lou Paget. Hello, everyone, and thank you. Uh, right now, what I'm going to talk about, and this was, to me, a fascinating presentation, and it was um, put together by uh, Robin Laughlin and Anne Armes Tudor, and they talked about sexuality education for people uh, with autistic, uh, with the autistic spectrum disorder, and I'm not going to go into what and how and why autism is so prevalent now. That is for another show altogether. But what we're looking at is when we have, and many times people will go, oh, um, what, what, who would be like that? Well, the character on Big Bang, Sheldon, is the one that many of these young men identify with. And the important thing about this is that Sometimes what happens, and for uh, 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 Dr. Laughlin, made, she's at the um, uh, Rush University Medical Center, and that's in the um, Chicago area. But what she talked about is often when they first see these people is because they have done something that is a problem, and they have been exposed to or they have been arrested or something has happened for reasons that they aren't even aware that they're doing. So they may think, oh, I've got to do this. I've got to take care of, you know, this, you know, this girl. I can't let her be alone. And meanwhile, she's thinking, this guy is completely creepy and stalking me. He doesn't even, those thoughts are not together. So he has what they would refer to as mind blindness. And what 
you know, and the reason, you know, and so he doesn't know that he's doing these things. They showed a great video called Adam and talked about that he doesn't even have uh, an awareness that what he's doing or what he's saying is is inappropriate. But they often are very highly functional, very, they're well-educated, but when it comes to the social side of things, they don't know how to act. They don't know how to respond. So they're working with, and for a lot of them, what they want is they want, uh, you know, 70 to 90% of them, they want a partner or they want a girlfriend and they want something that they can identify with. But here's what often happens is they are a 22-year-old who tends to be fixated on something like a 5-year-old, uh, Dora the Explorer, because that may be where things downloaded for them, and the parents aren't aware of it, but these, they often will find out when there is something, and these two um, therapists and educators get brought in to, you know, walk through the police or walk through the social workers and say, look, here's, you know, they have high awareness, they have high functioning, but they have no awareness of why the police maybe coming around. So to me, I, to me, this is an area because we're seeing more inability for people to connect or to know how to relate. And whether it's on the autism spectrum or whether it's just that they're spending too much time sitting in front of a screen and not in front of a human being. Have you ever seen so many shows where people don't know how to relate to people? How many reality shows? whether it is about dating, whether it is about um, blind first date, and all of these people lack an ability. They lack social skills. I mean, I don't know where people went totally flying off the deep end, but apparently this is um, ongoing elsewhere. So what I want people to be aware of is, yes, we do have people who are looking at this and who really want to be able, you know, to help the parents and to give these, you know, how to, how to teach the social places, how to teach the how-tos. This is you need to wash, you need to do this. And they're very step-by-step. Step. And also things not to do. This is where you wouldn't do this. This is where you would. And they use visual imagery. And we had a number of people in this presentation who this is their specialty area as well, which for me, you know, as I said, this is a great conference because I got a whole new raft of information. Now, um, microaggressions in sexuality. This was something I didn't even know about microaggressions. And there's times when I think people who are talking about microaggression, I get it. And there's other times I think, I think you're being a little over, overly sensitive. Um, it's just kind of like, uh, yeah, I mean, there's times when people say, you know, dumb things because they weren't thinking. But is that truly, you know, microaggression? Some of the things that he was pointing out here? Yeah, absolutely. No question. But someone was saying, this girl, you don't want to be sitting beside her because she smells like rice. What? What the heck is that? Because she was Asian. Not good kids. Okay, let's go to best sex advice you ever got. And I'm going to tell you some of the things that people have told me. There's no question that the best sex advice some people have told me that they received is how to 
how to kiss well. Because if you don't know how to kiss well, chances are you're not going to get much further with someone. Another thing is how to, how to do good oral sex, whether it is a woman on a woman, a man on a woman, a woman on a man, man on man. Bottom line is it's knowing about the variables in creating the great oral sex. And the big thing about creating great oral sex is you have to want to be there, okay? Plainly and simply. If you don't want to be there, that is intuitively someone's going to know. And if you think someone is supposed to take a short amount of time or it's supposed to look like a particular thing, you're going to short circuit the pleasure factor for you and for them. So the the big thing that I say to women is that you've got to make sure, save on your mouth, use your hands as well. And that's the same thing for men. And also learn about the Kiven method. And for many women, their concern is A, that they smell, which by the way, some of the guys on the autistic spectrum, that's one of the comments that they will say to women is that um, I, I don't want to do this because um, you don't smell good. Or, and well, what do you think happens after that? That's called the end. And, but what people want is they want to do step by step. How do I avoid making mistakes? Another thing is making sure you know how to touch. You can't just go in and touch someone with a hard, firm stroke that you might use on yourself. That may be too much. Or if it's too light, it may, be, it may tickle them. And it's the best time to learn how to touch someone, I will tell people this, do it when you are vertical. So in other words, not when you're sitting down, not when you're lying down. And just touch their arm and say, what kind of touch do you like? Because once you see it and once you see their face and them telling you actually, you can get an accurate download. Or you can ask them to touch you the way they like to be touched. Do they like a hard stroke, a firm stroke? Because in the same way you can't tickle yourself, you really can't touch yourself the way that someone else will. So, and, and one thing I do tell people is when you are listening to someone, do you realize that the same letters in listen are the same letters that are in silent? So when you are listening to someone, please, you can have someone telling you one of the most powerful things and you may miss it if you're thinking you're supposed to know a different answer that they're going to give you. Please, please don't do that. It's, it will short circuit their ability. And if people don't feel listened to, particularly in the area of sexuality, they won't tell you anything more. They'll just sort of like shut down or they won't share things with you. So, you know, and this, you know, going back to the um, information for the uh, autistic, they have, they have a very set way of how they want to respond to the world and one needs to, they need to have an awareness of a little bit of give and take and a bit of how they really need to listen to someone. And one of the final things that we had 
was a final plenary, the Whipple plenary, and this is Beverly Whipple, who is one of my mentors and absolutely fabulous. And there were two scholars. There was um, uh, Renesa Anthony, who is an MD, and Susan Kellogg Spade, who is a PhD. And what they spoke about is the women's health and medicine and creating collaborative approaches. And again, the real title of this entire conference was about creating collaboration and establishing connections. And they really did say, look, you go and talk to someone who is in your your field, your area. Um, the American College of, you know, uh, physicians. See if there's something, if you are someone who has an expertise in the area of sexuality, because doctors don't get very much training in this area, if they get any. So going back to, so the best sex advice that people have had is often the most practical. The, I realize that if I'm talking this particular way, I'm likely to get this result. If I listen this way, and it really is, because our sexuality is a form of communicating. It's your body saying what your body would to someone else. And a lot of times the most sexual and the most sensual thing that you can do is not something involving penile vaginal intercourse or intercourse or penetration. It can be something, you know, as simple as, you know, I got you a new toy or I got you a new this or I know you really wanted these cookies. Something that lets people know you get them. Because when you people know that you paid attention to them, your attention is your most seductive behavior. So I hope this conversation about, you know, more rooms at ASECT and more rooms full of sex educators was helpful for you and of interest. I look forward to the next one, which will likely be in Albuquerque. Uh, and thank you so much for being with me and enjoy and have a great rest of the week. for being a part of Sex Talk with Lou on TogiNet with host Lou Paget. Every week, this will be your chance to be a fly on the wall and learn about one of the most important parts of our health, our sexual health. Join Lou Paget. She will